turn our attention to the scriptures. Still making our way through this Apostles' Creed that we confessed together just a minute ago. This ancient uh, creed of the Christian faith dating back to the generation just immediately after the Apostles themselves. So early 2nd century A.D. Just tries to put in simple, memorable form the basic elements of the of the Christian faith according to the teaching of the apostles. We're in the, in the paragraph of the creed, if you <clears throat> were looking at it still on your phone, we're in the paragraph of the creed that confesses uh, what we believe about Christ. And we've already looked at the line, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And with that, we thought about the deity of Christ, that the fact that he is God in human flesh. And then we, then we, that was two weeks ago. And then <clears throat> Uh, last week it was the line, uh, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, in which we focused on his humanity and why we believe that he was God in true human flesh and human uh, nature, yet without sin. This week we're moving ahead to the next two lines of the creed for our attention tonight. They, those being, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. And my goodness, there is so much we could say and talk about that uh, from what is affirmed here. Um, for the past two weeks, we've been focusing on the person of Jesus Christ. Who is he? Right? He is the God-man, fully God, fully man. As Brother Al likes to say, he is as much God as if he were not man. He is as much man as if he were not God. Beginning with these two lines, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. <clears throat> we begin to focus, the focus shifts just a little bit from the person of Christ now to the work of Christ. What did he do? Being clear in our minds now who he is, what did he do? And it begins here to answer um, that question with these two lines, suffered, crucified, died, buried, so so foundational, so much we could say, and it, uh, it, it'll continue through the next few lines, you know, it's going to talk about, uh, ba ba both on what he's done, it's going to, after this, it's going to be he, he, his descent to the dead, his resurrection, his ascension, that's what's already happened, and still what is the work still to come, the fact that he will, he will return to judge the, the living and the dead. And uh, so tonight, I want us to focus on the suffering, crucifixion, death, and burial of Christ from two basic angles. So if you're taking notes, I'm going to try to give you a heads up of where we're going how we're going to tackle this, this thing. Here, because we could, theoretically, we could spend weeks, we could spend weeks on just these two lines that we're talking about. I'm going to try to tackle, tackle it from some angle in one night, all right? So here are the two angles I want to I think about this. <laughs> First of all, I want to think about the necessity of the cross. The necessity of the cross. In what sense was the suffering and crucifixion and death of Christ, in what sense was it necessary? Because, and what were, what were the necessary theological factors that led to the cross, that led to these lines that we just read about? Because at root, it was a spiritual event taking place, all right? Um, so the necessity of the cross. And the second angle is, too, the historicity of the cross. The historicity, history, historicity 
of the cross. Because when we say that on the cross, uh, fundamentally it was a spiritual event taking place, that is not to say it was merely a spiritual event taking place. It is not to say it was only a spiritual event. It was also at root a historical event taking place. And in fact, it is the historicity of the, of, of the event that makes the spiritual accomplishment of it possible. It is, it is the, the, I'll say that again, it's the, his, the historicity of the event that makes the spiritual accomplishment of the event possible. All right? So those two things, the necessity of the cross and the historicity of the, of the cross. And to begin thinking about those two things from Scripture, take your Bible and find with me Romans chapter 3. And when you find that chapter, Romans chapter 3, I want you to follow along with me as I read aloud, beginning in verse 19, and I'll read through verse 26. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. It was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he, had, he God, had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All right, let's pray. Father, what we just read and what we're going to read, the many different scriptures we'll think about tonight, we confess our faith um, that, your, that your word is, 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 this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. It is not merely the word of Paul. It is your word through Paul. And, uh, and I, I pray that, that as such, this is not a, this is a book that, that we need your help to read. I mean, we can read and understand the sentences, but to see it for what it really is, to have spiritual eyes to see and to see it for what it is, we need your help. So, Holy Spirit, would you give us eyes to see the truth that's here and in the, in the truth that we're going to think about tonight? Would you give us hearts to embrace and see afresh and care about and think and find important and be passionate about and love these, these truths that we think about. Worship you through them. And would you give us wills to obey whatever you call us to do. Please give us ears to hear. And me the help that I need to teach, I pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
All right, like I said, we're going to look at, at what these, these two lines in the creed uh, confess from these two different perspectives, uh, really the why and the how. The why, the necessity of the cross, the how, the historicity of the cross. And so we'll begin with the necessity, and let's think about that for a minute. When you read, when you read the Scriptures, not just this Scripture, but for, I mean, any of them, read, the, read the, especially the, the, the apostolic letters and things like that, when you read them, Sometimes it'll use, the, the, the apostles will use language about the cross um, that as if, as if there were some kind of necessity attached to it. Um, I mean, we see, I'll give you an example in what we just read. Um, so if you have your Bible still open, Romans 3, look, beginning in verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Now let me stop there. Some of your um, translations may say God put him forward as an atoning sacrifice. Um, that's, that's, that's an okay translation. The, it, you need to know the, what the word propitiation means, though. Um, propitiation is, is, a, is a theological word. Well, it's not merely a theological word. We just don't talk this fancy to one another. Um, propitiation means to turn someone's wrath away. Okay? To turn someone's wrath away. So if I was mad at you, te- technically, if I was mad at you and you did something and you, you wanted to do something to make it up, you wanted to apologize to me or something, you, you were trying to propitiate me. So I'm not angry at you anymore. You're turning my wrath away from you. And so when it says that God put forward Jesus as a propitiation, he, God put forward Christ to be, to turn his wrath away, right, from us, Right? By his blood to be received by faith. Now think about what, why Paul might have included this next sentence. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. So think about those last two verses. In the cross, God apparently felt compelled to show or to demonstrate something about himself. Or another way of saying it, he, he, putting Jesus forward as a propitiatory sacrifice on the cross, was necessary to demonstrate certain things about himself. But if you think about that long enough, that's, an, that's a strange idea too. We need to be clear, when we talk about the necessity, we need to be clear on what kind of necessity we're talking about. All right? Um, now, because it, you can think about it the right way and the wrong way, and, and, and it has to do with what kind of conception of God you have in your mind. So it's a big deal. So stay with me for just a minute. If you've been here for a while, if you've been at Lakeview for a while, you may have heard me talk about this before, but you may want to jot these terms down. There's two kinds of necessity we can think about when we're talking about God. There is absolute necessity, absolute necessity, and then the second kind is consequent necessity consequent necessity i know just think with me for a bit absolute necessity and consequent necessity what are those really it's pretty basic absolute necessity would mean that there was some inescapable necessity upon god to do this saving work it was necessary for god to do it in an absolute sense there was there was no sense in which it could not have happened that's absolute necessity. 
If we read the Scripture carefully, we know that this is not the kind of necessity God was under. Uh, It would imply that there is some ideal outside of God, some ideal above God compelling God to do this. It's not what the Bible says. That ain't right. Consequent necessity, on the other hand, means it is a necessity that is now true as a consequence of something else. Okay? And, that's, and that, that can be true of God. That something else is God's free and gracious decision in eternity past to save a people from their sins. So, so God, of his own free, gracious volition, volition, decided in eternity past, out of all of sinful humanity, he is going to save a people out of that humanity. And once he has made that decision as a consequence of that decision, now there is a necessity upon him for the cross. Okay, So that's the kind of necessity that we're talking about. Um, there is no thing outside of God or above God imposing the necessity upon him. It's a necessity imposed by his own decision, by his own will. Okay? Um, and now we can, we can ask the more specific question, having decreed to save, why was the cross necessary? That's what I want to think about tonight. Having, de- having decided to save a people from their sins, why was the cross necessary? And um, that's where I want us to be clear on these. Well, we're not going to talk about anything new tonight. I've probably just given you all the new you're going to get. This is basic, basic Christianity, and we don't ever need to forget it. There are, there are um, three necessary factors, three necessary theological factors for the cross. Each one of these factors is, is a necessary reality that produces the cross. Removing any of them changes the entire reality. So let's think about these factors. And I'll give you several scripture references for much of this. You may want to write them down. The first, when we're thinking about the necessity of the cross, the first factor in its necessity is our sin, humanity's sin. The Bible could not be clearer that all are sinners. You're already open up to Romans 3. Just look at what, again, what, not, in, not just in the passage we read. Look earlier in the chapter, beginning in verse 9. Um, all are sinners, beginning in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, all, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, and they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. Every mouth. Look at all the universal language. The whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Did you notice how much of that passage, too, over half of it, is just quoting the Old Testament? I mean, all that that's not in straight paragraph form in your Bible, it looks like a poem. That's all 
just repeated quotations of the Old Testament. So this is the testimony of Old and New Testament. Just a couple of other references. Second Chronicles 6.36 begins this way. If they sin against you, hyphen, for there is no one who does not sin. There is no one who does not sin. Ecclesiastes 7.20 Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. That is an idea that's all through the Old Testament. And it's on that basis that it's also an idea that pervades the New Testament. The first three chapters of Romans, the logic runs this way. Chapter 1, the Gentiles who do not have the law, don't have the scriptures, they sin. They worship the creature rather than the creator. Chapter 2, we Jews who have the law and have all the good things that God has given us, we sin. Chapter 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 is all about how we are all born in Adam. And, and, and meaning we have a human nature bent towards sin. And, I, and we will sin as, as, long as, we are old, as soon as we are old enough to live out and act out what we want to do. Scripture adds to the fact that we all sin, it adds this truth, that sin brings death and condemnation of God on us. Brings death and the condemnation of God on us. Genesis 2.17, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Spiritually, immediately. Physically, beginning at that moment. Immediate consequences. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. No, don't just think about that in generic terms. If it says, whatever that says, it's true of me. The wages of my sin is death. It is what I have earned for myself before God. It is what you have earned for yourself before God. It is what is inescapably owed to us. Jesus said in the passage we're going to study this, this Sunday, in a glorious fall morning out there under a tent that will be re-erected, he said in John 3.18, Whoever does not believe is condemned already. Is condemned already. As sinners condemned children of wrath before God, spiritually dead. That's what, that's, that is uh, Ephesians 2.3. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath. By nature, like the rest of mankind. So we're all sinners. Sin brings spiritual death, physical death, in, at, you know, all kinds of horrible consequences. And the condemnation of God. And thirdly, we have no ability to rescue ourselves. We don't have any way to dig ourselves out of that hole. Look again at Romans 3.20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. There is no amount of law-keeping that can free us or make us clean. Imagine a world in which from this moment on, from the rest of your life, you could keep God's moral law 
perfectly, inwardly, outwardly, always doing what is right, never doing what is wrong, even in your thoughts. Imagine you could do that from this moment on. Most of you have still lived two decades of not doing that. And I've lived four. (laughs) I mean, all the law, Paul says right here, all the law can do for me is is to continue showing me how unclean I am. All it can do is show me how unrighteous I am. All that do not walk on the grass will tell me is I want to walk on the grass. Seriously. And Paul says the same thing in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we, we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, but because by works of the law, no one will be justified. We are all sinners. Our sin earns and brings upon ourselves not only earthly consequences, and that they are plenty, We are spiritually dead before God and under his wrath and condemnation and unable to rescue ourselves from that condition. That's that's the first necessary factor for the cross. I mean, apart from that, there is no reason for it. But that being true, that's the first necessary factor, our sin. Second necessary factor for the cross is God's holiness. God's holiness. God's holiness is so brilliant that he can have nothing to do with sin. Isaiah understood that reality in a a clearer way when he had his vision of the Lord in Isaiah 6, high and lifted up on his throne. And the seraphim and the angels around God's throne were singing and proclaiming ceaselessly, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And what is, what is Isaiah's reaction to that? Woe is me. Woe is me. I'm a dead man. Why? I'm unclean. I'm unclean, and I live among a people who are unclean. It, it is it is against, it is contrasted with the holiness of God that sin appears to be what it is. Apart from God's holiness, sin is not even a thing. It's because God is holy like this that my sin is what it is. God's presence cannot peacefully coexist with the presence of sin. <coughs> Habakkuk chapter, two, chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. It's not saying he chooses to be unaware of sin, but he's stressing the distinction between the holy God and sinful human beings. Paul describes it this way, describes the Lord this way in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Unapproachable light. 
Why is it unapproachable? It says not, it doesn't say unseeable. Unapproachable. Why unapproachable? Unapproachable first because he's the creator and I'm the creature, right? And there's a distinction between him and me from the get-go, even if I'm not a sinner. But how much more is it true because we are sinful creatures before him? I'm not just a creature. I'm a rebellious creature. I'm a wayward creature. We simply have no idea how holy he is. It's not just that he's mean. It's not just that God is mean. His justice by nature demands. It demands that he bring condemnation to sin. It would be an unjust world indeed if that were not true of God. Paul says in Romans 2.2, 2, you probably see it in the page you're open. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. It rightly falls there. It's not just that it falls, it's right that it does. But there's a third necessary factor. So far, we've got our sinfulness against God's holiness. But if that's all we have, the only conclusion is hell, right? There's a third necessary factor for the cross, and that is God's mercy. God's mercy. And think of it this way. In an absolute sense, in an absolute sense, there w- God would not be unjust to show no mercy. God would not be unjust to show no mercy to us. Think about, think about fallen angels. You ever thought about that? We're not the only ones who've rebelled against God. A whole third of the host of heaven rebelled against God, right? And there is no salvation plan for them. There is no salvation plan for fallen angels who rebelled against God. In fact, all there is for them, as Jesus said in Matthew 25, 41, is eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. God's not unjust to do that. Apart from God's mercy, there is no cross. But God showed mercy to sinners. And the cross, the cross is the full expression of both God's holiness and his mercy. That's the beauty of the thing. Our sinfulness is the occasion for the cross, and the cross is the full expression of both his holiness and his mercy. How? Because in the first instance, in in the cross of Christ, God's holiness is vindicated. His holiness is vindicated. Look, Look again down at Romans 3, 23 and following. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, his holiness, his justice, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, holy, 
and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We said earlier that God put forward, when we're talking about necessity, we said God put, felt compelled to demonstrate something about himself. And what does it say that it was that he wanted to demonstrate about himself? His righteousness, his holiness, his, his justice. Why did God feel that, that that needed to be vindicated? Because a Jew reading this, when Paul wrote it, would not, this is the question that would naturally arise in their minds. If sins are really only forgiven through the cross of Christ, what about all of those sins before him? What about all of those sins before him? They didn't all die immediately. And not only that, scriptures in the Old Testament talked like Old Testament believers actually had peace with God. How did that happen if sins weren't forgiven until Christ came? I mean, the, the Old Testament clearly says in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And the Jew is going to say, how? How in Genesis 15 was that true and yet sins were not, could not be forgiven until the cross of Christ thousands of years later? How? The answer Paul gives here is God knew that an actual payment was forthcoming. God declared Abraham and all the other Old Testament believers declared them righteous in his sight, even though at that moment in time their sins weren't actually dealt with fully because he knew a full payment was forthcoming in Christ. And he can do that because he is God and he will sovereignly bring it about. And he wasn't bringing about through another. He was going to make the payment. It's why Paul ends this passage by saying that because of the cross, God can be not just the justifier, but he can be just as well as the justifier. He can, he can justify sinners and not be unjust in doing so. The saving act of God expressed through the cross of Christ was first to put God on display. The integrity and the intensity of his holiness. But it also put the depth of his mercy on equal display. Here is how John... Stott put it in his great book, The Cross of Christ. I would encourage you to, if you're a reader, to read The Cross of Christ by John Stott. And if you're not a reader, become a reader and read The, and read the Cross of Christ by John Stott. Here's what he said. We must picture God, we must not picture God as an indulgent God who compromises his holiness in order to spare and spoil us, nor as a harsh, vindictive God who suppresses his love in order to crush and destroy us. How then can God express his holiness without consuming us and his love without condoning our sins? How can God satisfy his holy love? How can he save us and satisfy himself simultaneously. We reply at this point only that in order to satisfy himself, he sacrificed, indeed substituted himself.
for us. That's beautiful. 1 Peter 2.24, He himself, Jesus Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Here's how John Piper put it. God's love was willing to meet the demands of his justice. His love was willing to meet the demands of his justice. And that's an important point that we need to be clear on as well. Here's just one more comment from Stott. This is just how we need to think about how we need to think about God's action on the cross because sometimes it's not said very well. Uh, some, some, some theologians have said the way people talk about the cross can almost sound like divine child abuse. You know, the father is doing this to the son. Here's what here is what um, Stott said. We must never characterize the Father as the judge and the Son as the Savior. It is one and the same God who through Christ saves us from himself. It's not like when Jesus was on the cross, he was merely bearing the Father's wrath. No, it's Jesus was bearing the wrath of God, and he is God. He is bearing his own wrath of his own gracious and merciful will out of the great love with which he loved us. So the necessity of, cross, of the cross, for God to be both just and the justifier, for him to display both his holiness and his mercy, cross is necessary. There's one more angle I want us to simply note that the creed here reminds us, and it is the historicity of the cross. This won't take long to think through but I love here's what I want here's all I want to point out about that I love how the Apostles Creed puts a time stamp on it it puts a time stamp on all this Jesus didn't just suffer he suffered under Pontius Pilate the Gospels name him right hence the Creed names him and not only is it in Scripture Outside the Bible, he is named by the ancient Jewish historian Josephus who lived during the time of the apostles. He named Pontius Pilate. The Jewish philosopher Philo who lived during the time of Christ named him. The Roman historian Tacitus, not a believer, named Pontius Pilate. Lived during the time of the apostles. Pontius Pilate, without historical debate, was a real person. Right? He was a real person. He was the Roman governor of Judea from AD 26 to 36. He was, he was in his seat of authority for 10 years. We know it. We know the years that he was there. And it was during that decade, in, in around 33, that Jesus of Nazareth came before him. And it simply reminds us that while, while the cross teaches us eternal truths about God's holiness and God's mercy, and it teaches us theological truths about ourselves, our, our sinfulness, we don't just believe in ideas. We don't just believe 
The Christian faith is not just ideas that we're giving assent to. The Christian faith is rooted in a historical reality. This really happened in human history, which matters for one because it sets Christianity apart from every other major religion on earth. And for another, because you and I are flesh and blood. We're flesh and blood who live in time and space. And it is eternally significant that when our Savior came, He came as we are to where we are to do His saving work. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whosoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. It is my prayer that every one of us here can truly say with the Apostles' Creed when it says not once, not twice, but three times, I believe. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, this word. And, and thank, you for, thank you for the cross. Thank you that when, when we were... Um, and are so sinful. I look at my own heart today and see how wayward I am after all of these years. I'm still, I'm still so wayward in my, in my heart, in my thoughts, in my words, in my actions. I know that in some ways I'm more like Christ than, than I used to be, but I'm still so unlike Christ. There is not one thing about us that merited you um, satisfying your own justice by mercifully substituting yourself for us. Not one thing deserved it. So thank you, Lord, for bearing our sins in your body. Make us more more and more thankful for that every day. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.